Happy Saturday, bingers. For this week's bonus episode, I'm joined by the host of the Do No Harm podcast. Do No Harm investigates the tragic events of an out-of-control CPS agency. He is a national investigative reporter for NBC News turned podcaster. Please welcome Mike Hixenbaugh. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. One, two, three. That's our uh, independent podcaster yeah, version yeah. of a clapperboard. <laughs> you know what? I, you know, I made this podcast with NBC and Wondery, which you know are a couple of high-powered media companies, and it's the pandemic, and so we did the exact same thing over all of the <laughs> in my closet <laughs> with home, you know, with recording equipment in my home closet with you know USB mics sent to sources and people were interviewing so that we could do this so yeah i'm, I'm i've grown familiar with the <laughs> the homemade model of podcasting <laughs> right so so that that's interesting i guess uh we'll, we'll just start right here um so you are you're a reporter for nbc news that is that's that's your background right yeah and to elaborate a little bit i you know i'm a, I'm a print newspaper guy by you know, my, my, my original background is I came up through small, medium, and then large newspapers covering all kinds of different things. And then my last few years at the Houston Chronicle, I was on the investigative team. And, and that's where I started working on this story initially uh, about the work of child abuse pedi- pediatricians and their role in the child welfare system. And mm-hmm. while working at the Houston Chronicle on that story, I got the job offer at NBC News on their digital team. So still a writer. I, I work for a broadcast company, but I'm a, a print guy still. And and we ended up finishing the project collaboratively uh, before it became this podcast. So let's let's talk a little bit about that that process as we were as we were setting up our microphones. That you are you were by no means a podcaster before you made this incredible podcast. No. Yeah, yeah, no. I my background again is in is in print, and so like any, you know, I'm 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 a millennial, so I, like any young journalist coming up in this business, you have some training in audio and video work. But no, I, I this 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 story was originally a multi part written investigation, and and lit after it, that was published in 2019, you know, NBC and Wondery had struck up kind of this partnership. You know, NBC, obviously, you know, traditional broadcaster that does make podcasts and then Wondery, which is a, you know, a big podcast company. And they agreed that they were going to work together on some projects. And so, you know, someone who was working on that side of things, uh, Steve Lichtai at NBC News, got in touch with me and said, hey, let's turn this story into a podcast. And that was kind of the start. And so, to to get this done, that was before the pandemic began. And so, what ended up happening to get this this story this podcast done was you know I'm based in Houston and you couldn't I couldn't go and physically interview anybody I know you've had to deal with this as well and so mm-hmm. you know 
Wondery sent me a lot of really fancy recording equipment and talked me through getting it set up in my closet at my home in Houston. <laughs> uh, my very sweaty, unair conditioned closet with, you know, blankets draped on the walls. <laughs> and, uh, I spent months in there, not just recording tracks, but also we did all of our interviews remotely. So you hear throughout the podcast all of my conversations with the different people in the story. We had to send them microphones <laughs> and coach them through getting those set up. And then we did all of the recording over the internet. Uh, so it was a pretty wild process. That's crazy. I had no idea in listening to the podcast. Because uh, <laughs> this is one of, the, one of the few podcasts where I just listened to it because I heard it was great and I wanted to check it out. And then as an afterthought, because I didn't really think of it as true crime. But then as I listened yeah. to it, I thought, man, this would be a great episode for truth and justice. So, but when I listened to it and was just consuming it as just a regular podcast consumer, I would have never, I thought you were sitting in, in the Bright's living room through yeah. all those interviews. Yeah, I got it. So shout out to Lata Pandya and everyone over at Wondery. They worked so hard to get that exact reaction. Um, the goal was to record in the, during, record a podcast during a pandemic that doesn't sound like it was recorded during a pandemic. And so you know, the, it was, a, I thought it was a technological feat when I, it, it, uh, and trust me, like it made it, you know, it was a pain at times <laughs> to make all of this work I'm remotely. Sure. And, uh, a lot of kind of, you know, there was always a producer in my ear during interviews, which some of them with the Brights, the main family that we profiled, you know, some of those sessions with them, like I remember the first time we talked with Dylan, we just did six hours straight. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, with a little break in the middle, but how many times we had to hop in and say, could you adjust this? Dylan, could you move the microphone here? Could you adjust it this way? Things that you would never do in person. You would just move it yourself. In that whole six hours, you're in your, your steamy yeah, closet. Exactly. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, progressively I'm removing layers of clothes and <laughs> Houston summers are no joke. So, Right. You know, it, it's funny. So there, there's so many, so many podcasters I know that, you know, one, you know, Robbie Ashaudry, who is, you know, a huge true crime podcaster. You know, mm -hmm. she was kind of the impetus of Serial and mm -hmm. she does Undisclosed and other shows. And she, I, I, I think she might still be recording in her closet. I think maybe in her new house now she has a, she has a studio, but for years she had the exact same thing, blankets and stuff piled up into a closet to record. I have so much respect <laughs> for people who do this regularly. <laughs> it's, it was, it's a lot of work. It's so much more work than just, you know, making a phone call and taking notes and writing a story. Yeah, and that and that closet thing's no no joke. I had to do it with uh, I had a, a TV show on oxygen. You know how they they'll they'll send me VOs they want me to record for yeah. it remote remotely. Same yeah. thing. They sent me the particular microphone, and they decided that my studio didn't have the right ambient sound. So I had to go sit in my closet for hours and record in the dark because of my <laughs> the light was it. I had a fluorescent light, and they're like, "No, that light's humming. You're going to have to shut the light off." And then yep. I had to record all these VOs in my closet in the dark. Yes. Yes. So you you said you're a millennial. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I am 36. Um, 36. Yeah. So you're not that much younger than no, me. I'm, I'm, I'm right on the brink. I, I'm an, a millennial elder statesman. So I'm the older <laughs> end of <laughs> the millennial generation. So. Right. So th they come to you with, the, how did you react when they came to you and said, we want to make a podcast? Were you excited about it? Or were you like, how the hell am I going to do this? I was initially very excited because I, I, I'm, you know, I, I like podcasts. I'm a podcast fan and I, I'd liked some of the stuff Wondery had done already. Um, you know, they, they, you know, Dirty John and, and Dr. Death, uh, Laura Beale. I knew that those were 
not just stories that were really well told, but you know, that they were really, they reached a huge audience. And, that, and as mm-hmm. a journalist, you know, that's huge. Like I, 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 we had reached a pretty good audience with this story, but the story is really important to me. And I knew that if we made a podcast and we made it well, and we made it with, with Wondery, that it would reach an even broader uh, audience. And, and so I was, I was excited for it. I'm always up. For, I'd never done anything like this. I thought it would be an exciting challenge. That was again, pre pandemic. And so I had no idea what it was going to actually turn into in terms of doing, getting the work done. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great medium, like the way you can connect. And, and then this story in particular, and I know we'll get into this, but there's a lot of audio that was recorded in real time by the family. And, and I knew that we had that audio and I knew how devastating it was when I listened to it in my initial reporting. And I knew that if we told a story around that, that it would affect people profoundly. And I, th- I think it did. Some of that audio was just an absolute gut punch yeah. listening to it. Yeah. I was I was hiking out in the woods as I was listening to one of the episodes that had me in tears trying to hide from my buddies while we were walking around <laughs> trying to be tough. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it, it was just, it really, it was just really, really impactful. Yeah. So what did you, what was, it, it, did you write through high school into college, want to be a journalist or did you, did you have another path before you were a journalist? No. So <laughs> I, I feel like I really, you know, backed my way into this. It, very amazing passion profession that I have. I, I in high school I didn't really have a plan at all. I in last minute before applying for college I decided that maybe I should be a sports writer because I liked I played sports in high school. I liked sports. I thought maybe that would be fun. I just didn't you know my 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 dad had worked. I'm a first generation college grad and my dad had worked and my mom had also worked in like warehouses and factories and. You know, I saw what mm-hmm. that, that life was like and how hard it was just to get scratch by. And so I wanted to do something that I would enjoy. Uh, and so anyway, so I went to college at the University of Akron and tried sports writing. Um, so got on at the student newspaper, uh, found that I <laughs> am more of a casual sports fan and it could not stand <laughs> hanging around at football stadium hours after the game was over while my friends were out drinking and having fun. <laughs> and so I, but, but during my news writing classes and working at the paper, I kind of enjoyed writing true stories, like true, like, you know, other things that aren't about sports, more, I guess, mm-hmm. meaningful subject matter. Um, and so then, yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't set myself up for a lot of success with my college route. I wasn't even at a journalism school, but I, I went to work at really small newspapers, first in uh, Ohio, where I grew up, and then at the Rocky Mount Telegram in North Carolina. It's a, not Rocky Mount in, but Rocky Mount, North Carolina, right. Eastern, Eastern North Carolina. And actually a lot of the work I did there early on, small newspaper, it's where you just cover everything. Like, and so there was a lot of, of criminal justice reporting there. In fact, it was, you know, I, I worked, I think a series of stories I wrote there about a, a serial killer who had been targeting poor, black, drug-addicted women and discarding them in tobacco fields over the course. It was like 12 women over the course of four years. Oh, wow. And I, I, I was kind of the only reporter in town <laughs> in Rocky Mountain doing the story. And, you know, anyway, so I, you, you kind of cut your teeth writing 12 stories a week. <laughs> uh, and right. then I eventually moved on to the Virginia Pilot and the Houston Chronicle. And I, it, it slowly became a passion of I, my, my, my deal now is I like to tell you know, 
true stories that shed light on an injustice. And I also aim to tell them in a way that is captivating so that people are engaged with, with it. And so narrative storytelling, investigative reporting is kind of my, my deal. Well, you, you definitely nailed it with Do No Harm. Uh, and I guess that's a, good, that's a good transition point into talking about this case, because th- this is a it's an extremely complex topic. And so so a little bit of of my background before I have you kind of break down the, the the case that you dealt with. So I was I was a fireman, but then on, on my days off, it's actually how I met my wife. I would because we only worked nine days a month because we were twenty four hour shifts. On my days off, I worked as a substitute teacher at a school for emotionally impaired children, hmm. and that's where my wife worked, and that's where we met. And then you know, and a lot of these kids weren't necessarily the definition of emotionally impaired, but they were maybe socially maladjusted. They came from from just very tragic situations at home. And we had a lot of frustrating dealings with CPS mm. during those years on the other end of the spectrum from this, from the story that you told, where, you know, kids are coming to school with, you know, cigarette burns on their arms and bruises all over them. And we always felt like we couldn't get CPS to do something. But, the, but then the other, the other end of that is the story of, that we hear of the bri- both the Brights and the Butlers that you told where they're doing too much mm. and, and they're, they're overstepping. Uh, so, so kind of leading into this discussion, can you kind of walk us through the basics of the case of, you know, what happened to Melissa and Dylan Bright and their son Mason, and then maybe how that ties in with the butlers. And then we'll kind of d- discuss what all of that means. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, just, so the, the overarching theme of, of all of both of these cases and all of these cases is, you know, as you described it, most people's thinking of CPS or their when when CPS is in the news, it's usually because they haven't they've left a child. They've gotten a report and they start to investigate maybe, and then that child ends up seriously abused or killed, and then it makes big headlines. And so th- these stories, and why I was drawn to telling these stories is that these don't make the news so often. And and in these cases, they they both point to a bigger issue around around the way medical evidence and for kind of forensic evidence is used in child welfare cases in a very kind of routine way. So so the backstory, uh Dylan and Melissa Blight Bright are, you know, a, a young married couple outside of Houston, Texas. They had two kids and in July of twenty eighteen, Melissa Bright, who's a stay at home mom, Dylan's at work, she was had the kids out in the yard and playing the sprinkler on a hot Houston day. And as it was time to go inside, she wanted to dry the kids off, take off their bathing suits in the yard before they went in. And that way they're not dripping wet on the carpet. And so she looked around the, 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 the cement. She didn't have a, a place to set Mason. So she set the baby, the four month old, uh, maybe he was five months old, four or five months onto a lawn chair. And he was small. If you were a parent, <laughs> you can imagine this kind of moment where it's just a second. The baby's not rolling or kicking, right? Or not rolling over or crawling or walking yet. So you think, okay, I can just turn around and then I can dry the two-year-old Charlotte with the towel, get her bathing suit off, and then turn back to Mason. And when Melissa turned away, she says she heard a thunk and then Mason screaming. And so he had obviously kicked off the lawn chair and hit his head on the driveway. He, he, he at some point passed out early on in, before the nine, and then she called 911. And they rushed him to the hospital. And so, the story begins with every parent's what you think is your worst nightmare. My kid is seriously hurt. It's a head injury, and he's he's Mm -hmm. gone limp at one point. And what they discover is, you know, while they're at the hospital trying to learn about 
what's his prognosis, how's he doing? Behind the scenes, a different kind of whole apparatus is at play that is at that exists at pretty much every major children's hospital in the country, or at every children's hospital in the country, for sure. There's social workers, nurses, and doctors who are trained to spot subtle signs of child abuse. And so Melissa came in telling a story about her kid falling off a chair, but his injuries were pretty serious. He had two skull fractures and subdural bleeding, which is bleeding around the brain. And that those injuries are more serious than what you would normally expect from a short fall. And so that that kicked off, you know, a report to CPS, which I think no one disputes was reasonable in those circumstances. Or nobody just, yeah, it's not unreasonable to notify CPS in, that, in those circumstances. And then what changes though, that a physician known as a child abuse pediatrician, it's a subspecialty of doctors, relatively new, whose job is literally to assess children for signs of physical abuse or medical neglect. And they filed a report with CPS that said Mason's injuries did not match Melissa's story of a shortfall and that his injuries were consistent with abuse. And that sent the Brights into this whole may the legal maze that is cps and what what we found in our reporting when you hear in the podcast is you you talked about having a hard time getting cps to pay attention to a case when a child Mm -hmm. abuse pediatrician issues a report saying using those words that a child's injuries are consistent with abuse it's 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 in some ways that should be the beginning of the investigation but in some ways and in some cases it's the end of the investigation for cps they like the doctor said these are consistent with abuse this kid was like you can hear it in the, in the audio, in the story. From that point on, Mason Bright was a, a child abuse victim. And the only question was who did it? Um, and so that leads the Brights toward eventually, you know, on, in the middle of the evening, um, in a month or two later, after they've been working through this process with CPS and a lot of frustrating back and forth that you can hear in the story, the child welfare worker comes and has a court order, emergency court order, um, signed without their knowledge at a hearing that they did not attend. And he takes their kids. And you can hear in the podcast the audio when that happens. And it's, it's really hard to hear as a parent, um, but, you know, Melissa and Dylan kind of arguing to keep their kids and Melissa sobbing as, you know, it's time to pack the kids' bags. And so they're going off to stay with strangers in foster care and they don't know when they'll see them again or if they can win custody back. And so that's the main narrative thread throughout the podcast. And then we also, but we also tie in another story that was happening at very, similar simultaneously to their case in Houston. But this family, the, the butlers, you know, dad had dropped the baby, he said, while heading out the door to go see fireworks. Lots of people were there <laughs> and, you know, attest to his version of the story. And, but he, the baby Langston had two skull fractures and subdural bleeding. And the child abuse pediatrician at the same hospital reported those injuries as consistent with abuse. And the butlers who were you know, the, the Brights are a white family, the Butlers are black. The Butlers entered the same system, but you, as you can hear in the story, faced just a different outcome, a different process, um, a different level of severity in terms of the system's treatment of them throughout, throughout. And so the story follows that, that dynamic. You know, the most, the most obvious part about that that was so frustrating to listen to is, you know, a- according to CPS, they're two similar instances. They, they don't believe the, the parent's story, they have similar injuries, there must be abuse, but the more affluent white lady is, you know, they, they take their kids and they're gone and they, and they have, a, and they have a, an incredibly hard struggle to fight to get their kids back, not to, not to d- diminish that at all, right? but Lance Butler is charged with a crime. 
Yeah. You know, the, the you know, the, the, the black guy gets, gets charged when the, you know, the, the white lady, it's, it's only a matter of CPS and the kids. Yeah. There, in, and I, I'm glad you bring this up. I, I think, you know, I, I've telling these two stories the way we did and the order that we told them in the podcast was a very intentional decision. And we wanted people to empathize completely with the brights as you heard what happened to them and how it happened to them. And, and, and there's no diminishing their experience. Like that's, there's been some criticism since the podcast came out though, that, you know, from people who <laughs> I think are in denial about systemic racism in our, in our country, uh, who like that we, we were somehow diminishing the brights situation by then comparing it to the butlers and it, but that's not the, that's not the case. I, I think both are horrible, but it's, it's impossible to look at these two cases and not see the differences. The, in the case of the, the butlers, as you'll hear, they're like the length of time that their children were apart from them. The moment in court, you can, you can hear in episode four when, you know, CPS reaches the conclusion that Sade Butler, the mother in the butler case, she, no one was accusing her of anything. And, you know, she actually went in and got her own apartment and set a kind of living separately from Lancer so that she could get the kids returned to her at least. And CPS even was like, yeah, that we support that. But when they took that to a judge who has the ultimate say in, in the juvenile justice, in the juvenile court system in Harris County, the judge yelled, no, N-O, uh, I'm afraid it won't be your name that ends up in the newspaper if I return this kid and something horrible happens to him. And so, you know, not even this mother, like he, he yelled at her at the very thought, at the very suggestion that she might be able to take good care of her kids. And that nothing, nothing comparable to that happened in the Bright case. Horrible things happened to them, but, you know, the, the, the judge in their case was a different judge, but he, you know, he, he was sympathetic. The law enforcement officials who came into their case, who, who were there to, uh, on the night of the removal, that the, the deputy was kind of comforting to them. In the Butler case, the police backed into a corner at the hospital and, and, you know, assisted in forcibly taking kids, the baby from her arms. And so you can see throughout that there's, there's just a difference. And, and then, and the big, most important thing to me is just, there's just data to back this up. Like when a child shows up at the hospital with subdural bleeding, there's a study out there that shows if the baby is black or Hispanic, they're twice as likely to be referred for additional testing for, to evaluate for abuse compared to a white baby. And then in addition to that, just the CPS, Child welfare system overall in America disproportionately polices black people. It just, it just is fact. It is not some subjective thing that we're inserting into this. Um, but if you're a black, this, this statistic is just, that is stunning to me. If you were a black child in America, by the time you turn 18, there's a 53% chance that you have been the subject of a child welfare investigation. And that doesn't mean you've been removed, but like CPS has, has been called to investigate your parents or your mm -hmm. caregivers or something in your life. And that's, you know, double that of the general population. And so, you know, the, 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 this is just the reality of it. Ch the child welfare system has all of the same systemic flaws that the criminal justice system has. It just hasn't gotten coverage like the criminal justice system. You know, you know I thought it was brilliant the way that you guys did put this together in that the the i want i almost said misdirect it's not a misdirect the story's about <laughs> the the brights but the the fact that you guys kind of buried the lead on 
on the the racial element until you got later on in the episode. It, it, it does a couple things. I mean, it drives it drives a point home that we maybe didn't see coming, and it also shows you that there's very little, you know, for 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 anyone who's denying systemic racism in America, it, it goes to show you there's almost no subject that you can get into where this doesn't exist if you look for it. Yeah. You know, in, in, in this case, you know, there's this tragic, and it is a tragic story about the Brights. And then it's like, oh, but look, if you compare it to an identical set of circumstances on, on maybe the other side of the tracks, it's handled very much differently that this does. And, and you guys didn't, you know, didn't, didn't beat the listeners over the head with that, but you yeah. definitely presented it. And, in, and then you definitely, you know, in the final episodes did make that point clear that, you know, the fact that this was a black family and this was a white family made a difference. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, and, uh, you know, I hope it didn't come across as a misdirection, but it was kind of somewhat an intentional choice to, I knew that there was a huge segment of our, of of people listening who would tune it out from the start if we opened with the, the comparison, an explicit comparison. And so we, we very intentionally, let's, the brights were always going to be this, the kind of the main story we told because of that audio. And that's, that's, that was kind of what drove that. And, and, and then the fact that they had this huge judgment in their favor at the end. And, but to, to not, you know, in the first episode, you could hear, I, I we allude to the, this issue in, in my opening kind of monologue when I said, like, you know, the story's about so much more than just one family. And I thought about my own kid had an injured elbow and how that may have gone differently if I was, if the doctor had made different assumptions about me based on my race or my income. So we alluded to that, but we very intentionally held back. And even when we introduced the butlers in episode four and their story, we just kind of let it play out without even explicitly talking about race. Right. You could hear the, the, everyone who heard this knew that the whites were white and the butlers were black. You, You knew that through just different contexts, but. It wasn't until the end when we laid out everything that we just kind of sat down and said, okay, dear listener, did you see this? This is what's different. And here's the data that supports why maybe it was different. It didn't stop. Like, it's funny where it, it set up a situation where maybe justifiably so in the first few episodes, I was getting a lot of um, kind of feedback that was from listeners like, why did you, why did you tell the CPS child welfare system disproportionately attacks black families or affects black families? Why? Did you tell a story about this kind of suburban white couple? <laughs> and so that was the initial feedback. And now the back half is, you know, a lot of the comments have been, um, this story was great until the end, until you ruined it with politics. <laughs> <Right. Can't> win. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to podcasting. Don't read the comments. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> My wife reads them to me sometimes. So that's, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. How old are your kids? I have four kids and they are age. Nine is the oldest and the youngest and about to be 10, actually. And the youngest just turned two uh, last month. I also have four and my youngest is nine and my oldest oh, okay. is, is 20. And the older ones relish in, in sitting in, when we're at the dinner table uh, <laughs> reading to me like, hey, dad, did you read what this person, this person uh, called you a blowhard <laughs> on your iTunes reviews? <laughs> oh, great. So that's what I have to look forward to with, with yeah, my kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, but you know, I want to ask you, and I, I want to get back into the case, but I'm I'm curious in what we're talking about. We're you know having you know two massive kind of production houses behind you, Wondery, who I work with, um, and NBC News. Who? How did the creative control come out as far as you know the map of this story, the way it was told? 
is did you write that or did or was that is that was that kind of put together by the by everyone as a team both i mean so i as as i mentioned i've never done a podcast i've never written a script um but uh, i very much wrote this one the way it worked was you know wondery I worked with George Lavender and lots of Pandya at Wondery most closely and, and, you know, they, they're pros at this. They've, <laughs> they're, they've done this type of story many times or this kind of, you know, the style of podcast storytelling. And so th- they sent me, you know, scripts from past shows to kind of show me like kind of what that might, how you format it <laughs> like to that, down to that level. Mm-hmm. And they had me write kind of an outline for a series of how it, how it might go. Um, and then we went some back and forth with them working on how to just kind of how the episodes would be broken down. But then from there on, it was like, I, to me, it felt like a little bit like, you know, kind of stumbling through the darkness and, and <laughs> because this is so new to me, but I, I wrote, I would write a draft script and, and Lata and George. And, and then I worked with my editor at NBC, Julie Shapiro, who again is, you know, words editor. Like she's not done script writing or podcasting before either. So she also, had a role in, in edits, but, but, you know, they would, we would just kind of work back and forth to get it into the, to the right shape. But once we did the first episode or two, and they have a great process, we, what, once we, once we'd get the store, the, the thing drafted and all the sound, kind of the different sound bites placed and the voiceover, the, the narration script written in a draft, they would do, they do table reads and, <laughs> and it's, it's like a performance. And so like everyone gets, everyone involved in the podcast gets on the phone and, I read my section of narration and then there's, there's an, you know, a producer on the other end who hits play on each of the tracks that we've dubbed in there. And so you can start to feel like what works and what doesn't work when you, when you are splicing this stuff together. And as that happened, as that, as we did, you know, each episode, I feel like got a little bit easier to write along the way. And so it was very collaborative. And, and, and you know, Wondery does the pros of this that you, you see that they've done podcasts with print people. They do it frequently. They, their first big hit was mm-hmm. with the LA Times with, a, you know, a narrative investigative reporter who. With Dirty John. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. so they know how to. And what, what's beautiful about this, I think, is that the style of writing, the kind of magazine, narrative, literary, nonfiction print writing that we do really translates well to like. It's different in the sense that we're using a lot of, you know, what we would call quotes <laughs> in, a print, in a written story, but like taking tape. And just kind of using that to help tell the story and let people's voices guide it. But the, the elements of, of how you tell the story and the pacing and the kind of foreshadowing and suspense that you layer in kind of comes natural for people who've, who've written those kinds of print stories in the past. Um, so it was, it was great. Yeah, it was, I learned a lot from these guys. That, that's awesome. That's quite, that's quite a process, um, much more in depth than our process here at Truth and Justice. <laughs> oh, yeah. They got a whole I, team. I need- yeah. You know, I, I will, when you listen to uh, the podcast, it, I mean, it's polished, right? I mean, they've got a team right. of, you know, they've got all these editors, but then, the, you know, there's, there's really, um, high level sound design <laughs> that's happening to, to kind of give you this immersive, sound experience it's amazing because you know my name goes on it and then like i'm mike hicksonball i'm the host and writer of this but there's so much happening behind the scenes to make it sure. sound so you know like such a high quality production it's it's amazing i've never had that kind of support behind a project before it's pretty remarkable yeah and, and, and the finished product was amazing so so getting back to the to the case um 
So you, you talked about, you know, Melissa, you know, the, the Mason falls off the chair. She goes in. The mm-hmm. doctor says the injuries don't match her story. CPS gets involved. Um, the child removed. And, you know, they, it, it, you, when you listen to the podcast, you hear the whole story. But, you know, they're, they're one thing that I thought was was remarkable. Two things. One was the fact that they they thought to document mm-hmm. all of this by recording all these conversations with CPS, with law enforcement, but also their their willingness to to try to work thinking that as long as we are working with them and doing what they ask, that this is all going to work out. Dylan, especially there were times when Melissa's really breaking down and Dylan's like, okay, we'll do it. Well, you know, whatever horrible thing this is, we'll do it. Whatever we have to do in order to, to make this work out. And then ultimately they come and they, they just take the kids away for a, an, an imminent threat. Can you talk a little bit about that when they, why it was so ridiculous in a, in a later judge's order said just that. Why it was so ridiculous for them to come in and say that they had to remove the children because there's an imminent threat to their lives at this very moment. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there's a lot going on in this case, but I think the the, the point I would make here is it, it really illustrates the power that the child welfare system in Texas and in most states grants to the findings of child abuse pediatricians. And so I'll, I'll mention that, just a little backstory here. Again, if when you listen to the podcast, this you, you'll learn this. And if you read our written investigation, which is kind of more uh, detailed, also called Do No Harm. So if, you, if you Google NBC News and Do No Harm, you'll find the stories. It, essentially, there's this field of medicine called child abuse pediatrics, where it's a pediatrician who's gone to additional fellowship training and they study these kind of injury patterns to deter- and, and are trained to determine, based on looking at a child's injuries, whether or not they match a parent's story or whether or not they could be explained by an accident versus abuse. <laughs> um, and the goal is to save kids' lives because a lot of times kids come into the hospital, parents lie or caregivers who are abusive will make up a story. They'll say the kid fell off the bed and you're like, no, the kid can't fall off the bed and, you know, fracture 17 bones in their body, right? And so, that's the idea. However, there are lots of cases where it's, you know, when a kid falls off a short distance, they don't normally have two skull fractures and subdural bleeding. And so, they look at Mason Bright and they say those injuries don't match the mother's story. But what, what you find in our reporting is, you know, obviously there's a range of, th- of outcomes that can happen from accidents, right? And so, when a kid falls a short distance onto concrete, actually, you know, there's studies that show some percentage of some small percentage of kids who come into an ER after a short fall do suffer two skull fractures. You know, when you hit the, the the skull hits the ground, and you know maybe there's a fracture, but there's it can even fracture a different plane, a different section of the skull. Kind of like if you dropped an egg, you wouldn't have a fracture in just one spot, right? Or a break, a crack in one spot. And so, like there's there's data that shows well, Mason Bright, maybe it wouldn't you wouldn't expect two fractures, but it can happen. And then subdural bleeding, well, you don't normally get that from a shortfall, but it was onto concrete. And then it turns out Mason had a bleeding disorder that causes his um, blood not to, to not make clots appropriately all the time. And so, when you look at it, what you can see is what really should have been reported to CPS maybe is these injuries could match the mom's story, but maybe not. And But instead, the the, the message was these injuries are consistent with abuse. This child the CPS interprets that to mean this child was abused. And so, when CPS does its investigation and finds like this is a very pre- suitable household, there's no evidence of prior 
abuse history. Mom and dad seem appropriate. Nobody is, nobody, any, they can't find anywhere, any evidence anywhere that the parents have, you know, anyone has any concerns about these parents at all. And, but, you know, they have this report from a doctor and that's a huge liability for CPS. Six months before the Bright case, if we talk about it in the podcast, a child abuse pediatrician did report injuries to CPS in another case in Dallas, in Texas, and CPS concluded that the baby's injuries, the child's injuries in that case, weren't inflicted by the parents. And then the child, Sharon Matthews, ended up being murdered. And her father was charged and convicted in the murder, in, in, in her killing. And so, CPS is left, when they're looking at their Bright case, with, you know, this huge, you know, this case, if that happened again, there'll be, there'll be national headlines about the case. And so, even though those caseworkers, maybe even if they believed Mason Bright really was, did fall off a chair, they have that doctor's report. And I, I think what you see in this case is that they took that as like the gospel. is like, it, not like the doctors reporting concerns for abuse, but the doctors were declaring this child was abused. And so, they put in the affidavit, this child is in, in, these children are both in imminent danger and we need to take them into state custody immediately. But the, the part that was frustrating about that was that they had been, yeah. if I understood it right, the kids have been returned to the parents' yeah. home for yeah. almost three so weeks. That's, that's part of the nuance here. It, you know, the, 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 the Bright case shows kind of the, this frustrating push and pull between CPS and the parents where Mason's recover, Mason, the baby, is recovering from surgery and he, he's having a really hard time. Initially, they just let the baby stay with his grandmother at Dylan's parents' house um, while the CPS investigated. But the baby needed, was needing his mom, he was nursing baby, and the CPS wouldn't let the baby stay with Melissa at night. And so, the Mason kept screaming and screaming all night, and he ended up causing, you know, it, that caused issues that required him to have additional surgery. And as he was recovering from that surgery, the Brights continued to plead with CPS, please let us take the baby home or to this other house or that's, near, that's closer to us at least. And CPS just kept saying, no, we're not going to do it, even though there was no <laughs> clear reason not to do it. And so, when they still didn't have an answer and, C and CPS continued to drag their feet as they were being discharged and Mason's recovered from a second surgery, Dylan eventually called CPS and said, you know, this is not in my child's best interest. You say this is all in his interest. It's not. And so, um, we're bringing him home. And the Brights had their kids home with them for three weeks and heard nothing from CPS. They, in that time, they got a second medical opinion from a radiologist who said, uh, actually, Melissa's story could conceivably explain Mason's injuries. There's no reason that she sees that it couldn't. And so, and yet, <laughs> on a kind of without warning, CPS caseworker went to a judge three weeks after the kids had been home all that time and got the emergency order to, to take them into state custody. And then he, he showed up on, under, like having told them, I just need to check on the kids. But instead, he showed up with a court order one evening and took the kids and put them in the back of his car and took them to foster care. Right. And that scene, that the audio from that is, is heart wrenching. It's brutal. Um, and, you know, for, for the rest of the, there's so much detail and, and such great narrative storytelling here. I think everyone of you listening, it's, it's worth, it would definitely be worth your time to check out Do No Harm. Listen to the whole podcast. It's not. A, it's not a long series. Is it? Was it uh, six episodes? S six episodes, and there's a seventh episode where we just kind of talk about the reporting. Right. 
But I will say oh, real quick, I, I, when the reason I think it's why we wanted to tell this story and why this this audio when when you hear when you think about protecting children, like it, the the mindset of being like, well, just take the kid. Better safe than sorry. Better to have a kid removed for a few days or a month or a few months than to have a kid murdered. And so, like, you're just going to have to take the kid from some families, even if they're innocent in some cases. And I, I wanted to tell the story because I thought if, if if people could hear what that sounds like when you do that. And, and so he, here's the, here's what that policy sounds like in practice. And you hear Melissa Bright sobbing and you hear Charlotte, the two-year-old, trying to comfort her mom. And then you, you hear the parents' anguish as they're clicking their kids into the stranger's car and having them drive off. That nobody could hear that and think that we should just be better safe than sorry in all cases. That there has to be some kind of more nuance and thought that goes into policy making when it comes to child welfare. So that you're working to protect kids who are really truly in danger, but not needlessly traumatizing kids who haven't actually been abused. Right. And it's easy to say, you know, I kind of liken it to the um, sort of off topic, not all the way, but like stop and frisk policies, right? Yeah. You've heard people say, well, what's the big deal? If they stop you and frisk you then, and you don't have anything, then if you're not doing anything wrong, it won't be a big deal. It's like, that's easy to say when it's not happening to you while you're walking down the street with your friends or your girlfriend and being thrown to the ground and in, in, in these things. It, it's similar. It's easy to say, what's the big deal? If they just get taken away for a couple weeks. Yeah, it's, it's a great comparison. And, and in fact, when you think of the child welfare system, the vast majority of cases, they don't remove the kid. But the process itself, is a hardship, especially if it, when it's mostly targeting and affecting low-income families, single mothers often. This system, the, the referral itself is a hardship, and the investigation itself is a hardship, even more so than to stop and frisk. I mean, it's, it's you know, it, you have to jump through all these hoops to maintain custody of your kids, and what's more important to a parent than having their kid with them? And it, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, this, it's a great comparison. Yeah, and 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 I I've actually you know the other part of my background as I mentioned like working at the emotionally school for emotionally impaired I dealt with you know seemed like CPS wasn't doing enough. The other part of my background is is we've actually had my wife and I have had CPS called on us. It was for something ridiculous. Well, the the short story is we had CPS come investigate us because we fed our kids frog legs. Um, oh my god! There's yeah, it, it was. It was a it was a bitter someone trying to cause problems, but so the but but the process we so we went we went through this process and the process for us was at the, at the time we had a middle schooler and two elementary schoolers. My youngest wasn't in school yet, but all the kids come home from school. Now the the two younger ones were just said some lady came to school and pulled us out and wanted to talk to us Goodness. about you guys, and then the one in middle school knew what was up. He said uh, some lady from like CPS came and was asking me all these questions. And we live in a very small town, and it's like so. CPS came to our school, and so everybody at the school knows they came, and then they contact us, and then and then she came, and we still didn't have any idea what it was about. Wow! But they came in, and yeah, that, we had no idea why this was happening. They just showed up, talked to the kids, and then came to our house, and then the lady explains to us, just like this is complete ridiculousness. She's like, somebody's got a beef with you guys. And and we knew knew who it was, but uh, but I have to go through this process. And I remember this. So the process for us was we have to look in your refrigerator and make sure you have food, and we have to look through the house and make sure that everybody has a bed to sleep in. And you know, essentially that was that was the end of it. But I remember thinking like, what you know, we what if we were 
poor, if we were if we were didn't weren't in a in a good financial circumstance where maybe we had to have for a, you know a kid sleeping on a cot in another kid's room because we have four kids and it wasn't yeah. a big house. You know, it's like it's like could this have broken bad really quickly over something this silly? And so yeah, just that little bit of process for us, and we had to go through town. And we'd you know we'd go out to out to eat, and we're like, I heard CPS got called on you guys. What happened? Absolutely. You know, oh, and you know, the, the, our story dealt with a kind of a rare subset of cases, not, not rare, but a small subset of CPS cases where it's a physical abuse allegation and the report comes from a child abuse pediatrician. However, the vast majority of CPS investigations and removals are stem from allegations of neglect. And it's sometimes very difficult to distinguish what is being labeled neglect from what other people might just consider poverty. Right. And so, you know, it's it's a it's a system that deserves a lot more scrutiny than just my podcast and the stories we've done. I think there's there's a whole host of work and and some and, the, and journalists have done this, but it, it's it has not garnered the child welfare system has not garnered nearly the attention that the criminal justice system has over the last you know two decades and uh, and it, it it operates very like in a it affects basically the same number of people and can throw all these kinds of hardships down at the feet of people who are already struggling. In, right. in the effort of t- trying to protect children, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I, the, 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 this, these agencies exist and have a, a purpose and it's difficult work, but the, the U.S. certainly has a more punitive approach to child welfare than most countries. Yeah, it's, and so I, I guess in closing, because that's, that's the tricky part is what you just said is, there is a purpose here, and I don't mean to demean to say there's not there's not well-meaning folks working for child protective services. Certainly, there are, and mm-hmm. it's a, and it's a horrible hard job. But it is also whether they're doing their job right or wrong. As you said, the process is still heartbreaking for everyone involved. Always, you know, even if they do an investigation and find there's nothing nothing wrong, they did their job. It's you still are going through all this trauma. But in your time in reporting this and, and researching it. Do you do you have an opinion of of you know what's the solution? We can't just do away with it. Is there a solution, or do you have if if you're king of the world, how do you fix the problem? <laughs> that is a difficult question to answer. I, I I would say I think just broadly speaking, I think more thoughtful policymaking and probably more training and resources is just some kind of baseline solutions uh but you know that that's probably not a magic bullet there there are people out there who you can find who it's not gotten nearly as much attention but there's there's actually an abolish cps movement much like you know defund the police and it, it, the kind of the idea is like we got to tear the system down and start it over because it's you know it it has the problems are too big to just fix and so i i, I don't but the system that you build in its place i'm not sure i'm sure there's other countries that maybe you can Model it after. I mean, some some people point to, you know, mandatory reporting laws as a main problem. And so, like, you know, in most states across the country, professionals or even all people in some states are have statutory like obligation to report if they to CPS if they have a, a suspicion of abuse. And that becomes a situation where you you see a big increase in reports where they don't actually believe the kid was abused, but they have this kind of like, well, maybe in the back of their head. And so that feeds a lot of people into the system that aren't, maybe don't need to be in it. 
And so that's just one area, but I, 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 the, the, there, I don't think there's a magic bullet fix for this. It's, it's got, it, it, I think the first step is acknowledging that the system that's intended to protect kids sometimes harms them. And just acknowledging that at the start will help, I think, policymakers think about ways to thread the needle better. I, I absolutely agree. It's a very complex problem. And, and hopefully just the fact that you are you're helping fix the problem by just shedding some light on it and educating people. And for those of you listening, the podcast is called Do No Harm. It's fantastic. The host and writer is Mike Hicksonball. And Mike, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.